Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast, Friday edition for Revelation. We've just got a few weeks left of this series, but we are still loving doing these questions. I love getting to come back on these lessons and get a little extended discussion. We're on week 11, which means you've been in chapter 20. I always like to start out with a little bit of a recap. What did you teach on this week? We're going to spend two lessons on chapter 20, even though it's short. You know how contentious it has been in the history of the church. We spent our time talking about the millennial views. So the first part of chapter 20 talks about uh, after the Battle of Armageddon, then it opens with an angel binding Satan for a thousand years, and Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years with the saints of the tribulation. And at the end of that thousand years, it is necessary, the text says, for Satan to be released, he'll stir up trouble, be defeated, then we go into final judgment. So we talked about the different views that Christians have held historically from the beginning, earliest, earliest church of the millennium. And the millennium, the thousand-year reign, breaks down along this question. And the question is, is the second coming of Christ before or after the thousand-year reign? Well, if you read it in a chronologically linear way, well, obviously chapter 19 has the second coming of Christ and Armageddon, and chapter 20 is the thousand-year reign. So pre-millennial, Jesus comes before the thousand years, the millennium. So that's a pre-millennial view. And we talked about two different varieties of that. One was the original historical premillennialism, which basically doesn't have a rapture. And then the modern day, more common today, dispensational premillennialism, which does have a rapture. Then, of course, there are some that would say that uh, the millennium is going on now and Jesus is coming is after the thousand years. It's called postmillennial. And then you have what is called amillennial. And amillennial says, wait a minute. The thousand years is a symbolic number, and the reign of Christ is actually happening in the uh, through the gospel. So there's not a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. It's talking about the reign of the kingdom of God on earth. So those are the three basic views, and we spent some time talking about those. And we'll recap that in our next lesson before we go into the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. I think this is maybe the hardest... I don't know if it's the most controversial because I think there are some controversies surrounding the beasts and antichrist that are probably a little bit more heated. But mm -hmm. in terms of substance, maybe this is the most deeply divided section of Revelation in terms of interpretation. And maybe the most difficult is figuring out when, how long, and in what order the millennium right. happens. Uh, right. And this chapter has a million things written about it. And uh, you presented several of the major views. It's not a surprise to me then that we have several questions this week, uh, some pertaining right. to this, some just generally. But it, it, this would have been my pick for a big question week. We have four good questions this week. The first one is a little bit of a throwback. We got this one over email, and I just want to use that to remind people. You can send in a question anytime. People do, uh, you know, in this series at least, we've been getting questions every week. Info at SoWeSpeak.com. We got this one over email. This is really an interesting question, but it takes a minute to set up. In speaking about the Shiite view of Armageddon within the Muslim faith, the Mahdi is to return with Jesus and gather an army to face a literal battle. Knowing that we Christians will not fight in the battle of Armageddon, we discussed this uh, last week and two weeks ago on this podcast. This sounds like 
uh, a lot of, sounds a lot like the armies who travel across dry riverbeds from the east. Are there any camps who view this as representing not the Mahdi and Jesus, but as the Satan and his Antichrist? So this is really a fascinating question about how Islam and the things that are taught about the end times in Islam might actually coalesce with what's happening in Revelation, but in a reverse sort of way. So what's your take on that? Yeah, this is really interesting. Let me just sketch first the Islamic view of the end times. There are two major branches of Islam. And again, I'm painting with a broad brush, but the ones you know about, and they are the two major branches, are Sunni Islam, and majority of Muslims are Sunnis. And then you have Shia or Shiite Muslims, and that's a minority, but Iran is Shiite. And so they are very vocal. They are very... Uh, uh, they're def they're very aggressive. Let me put it that way. The Sunnis uh, vary. They have some aggressive elements, but they have theologically different beliefs. But one thing they have in common is many Sunnis and almost all Shiites understand that at the end of times, they there will be uh, a return of uh, a messianic kind of figure. That Jesus will come, but he will be a Muslim. His name is Issa in in Arabic, but he will come, and but he will be a Muslim and saying, hey, you Christians all got it wrong. You need to worship Allah. And they will fight the enemies of Allah, and there will actually be a battle. And that's one of the reasons that you see traditional Islam being as militant as it is, is because their eschatology incorporates that idea. So within particularly the Shiite version of it, there were 12 imams, 12 successors to Muhammad, the great prophet. And the 12th one disappeared, uh, may have been killed, but the Shiites say no, not killed, taken away from the earth by Allah, and that he will return. And that's called the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I, that that 12th successor of Muhammad called the 12th Imam, and these Shiites are called Twelvers, is, is that he is awaiting to return, and he will return, and Jesus will return with him, and they will gather all the faithful Muslims, and there will be a great battle. So we talked about that basic setup and that view. So the question is, is in that context, could the Antichrist be an Islamic figure, and could Islam effectively be playing a negative view in Christian eschatology, Christian end times. And that uh, idea is not an original idea. In other words, the questioner is right. People have thought about that before. They've thought about a number of Islamic figures. For example, a few years ago, when uh, Ahmadinejad was the president of Iran, and he was very vocal, he was a very public figure, uh, he coalesced a lot of the world of Islam in opposition to the West. There were many that advocated that he might be the Antichrist. He might be the one making a coalition. Of course, the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, is thought of as potentially an Antichrist figure. And if and, and today, when you think about it, with Iran and Russia and China forming a bit of an axis against, obviously against Israel, but against the West as well, you do see people theorizing that certain Islamic leaders could be that. Well, in that, you would say, well, if indeed 
the, uh, from a Christian point of view, if indeed the Mahdi comes back and raises an army, he's more likely to be the Antichrist than anything else. And so that that thought is something that people have theorized. Good question. Well, this this answer isn't going to uh, win friends and influence people among the Muslim crowd, but there are parallels there that, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, people have pointed out for a long time because what the Antichrist is going to do is going to be a religious figure, but taking right. away from Christ. And there's some obvious parallels to the revelation to Muhammad, the rise of Islam, the geopolitical uh, aspects of Islam in today's world. So this is right. this is something worth talking about, discussing. Certainly, from maybe more of a dispensational view, the axis between China and Russia is highly significant in eschatology. Right. And so to have that in combination with a strong Muslim religious leader or group of religious leaders sets off all kinds of alarm bells. And and that's really illustrative of the different ways that these different views take on political developments, geopolitics. So you're getting this this question just opens up a lot of great discussions and a lot of different ways of viewing revelation. So I'm glad glad to have a chance to talk about that. Uh, Our next question is. On the views, this this one is in in the premillennial view, when Satan is released at the end of the thousand year reign, who is he stirring up to rebel? Where did the kings of the four corners of the earth come from? This is a great question dealing with once you've had, you know, a third of the earth pass away, you've had all the plagues, all the tribulation. Who who's even left at this point? Who is Satan when he's you know when he's unbound? Who is he stirring up? Who are these kings? What's the situation on Earth going to be like at that point? That's a great question, and it's really one of the it's it's not an insurmountable difficulty, but it's a little bit of a difficulty for the pre millennial view. And here's what I mean by that: pre millennial view takes Revelation in a chronologically linear order. So by the time you get to chapter 19 and the Battle of Armageddon, you've got a lot of people have died on earth, and you have the Antichrist gathering together great, great armies. Now, to be fair, it doesn't say gather together every person on earth. So, it, But there's great, great armies, and then Christ returns for Armageddon and destroys those armies. People are killed, but not everyone on the earth. And so as Christ then sets up his reign with the resurrected Christians from the tribulation, then they would be ruling over and helping to rebuild the nations of the earth. And a thousand years later, and here's the sad part of this, as Satan is released, all of those people in the world are still susceptible to his deceit, and they rebel again. So the question, where did those people come from? They are people, uh, they would have to be people who are left after the Battle of Armageddon. In other words, the armies are killed, but not everyone in the world is killed. And yet, I think probably the biggest point here is they still don't repent. They still follow after Satan. And so you, you get a sense here of God giving humanity every possible chance. Now, just uh, this wasn't in a question, but let me just contrast this. So take an amillennial view, for example. It doesn't necessarily take this in a chronologically linear way. In fact, you have the mention of Armageddon in chapter 16. You have the battle of Armageddon in chapter 19. And you have at the end of the thousand years, you have Satan rebelling and being destroyed. 
And so our millennial will say, no, actually, we're we're doing the whole millennial thing right now and would say all three of those events are the same thing. They're just the same story told three different times. And so you can see there, there's no difficulty where the people came from. They are here. There's just one big battle of Armageddon. But for the premillennial view, those have to be the survivors of Armageddon. And over a thousand years, the earth is uh, re repopulated, rebuilt, if you will. So that's, that's a great question. Uh, but me, it it is hard for people to, to uh, believe, Cole, that after that thousand years, people would still rebel. But that probably says something significant about humanity. Yeah, let me connect to what you just said with another question that we have. Uh, going back to the view that maybe all of these things are talking about the same event, the Battle of Armageddon, Satan being unbound is after the thousand year reign, we're in the thousand year reign of the church age. Now mm-hmm. this person asks in the post-millennial view, who binds Satan? And maybe I would add to that. When is Satan bound? How do you deal with the binding of Satan in a post-millennial view? Yeah, that's a great question. So remember post-millennial view says that the millennium, the rule of Christ on earth is actually referring to the spread of the gospel so that people, one after another after another, turn their hearts over to Christ and the kingdom of God is growing. And so the reign of Christ on earth is the church or or those individuals who've surrendered their life to Christ. So if you think about the millennium, the reign of Christ in that way, then that's going on now. So if if Satan is bound during the millennium, when then would he have been bound? Most postmillennialists think that the binding happened at the cross in the sense that Jesus overcame Satan. He no longer has the power to keep us from being saved. In other words, we have a, a way to be saved that we never had before the cross. We couldn't be righteous before God because we had our burden of sin. But after the cross... Satan can't keep us. He no longer has a mortgage on our soul. He no longer has sin to hold over our head because Christ has paid the price. So post-millennialists would say he was bound by the act of the resurrection of Christ, by Christ's atoning work on the cross. And so as I know that the text in chapter 20 says, I saw an angel come down, seize Satan, and bound him in the abyss. A post-millennialist would say, well, that's basically saying they would understand that in a symbolic way of being bound by God in the gospel, as opposed to literally being bound in the abyss. So that, that's a great question. Postmillennialists think that it's essentially the act of Christ on the cross that has bound Satan. He no longer has the power over us that he once had. Yeah, big text for the postmillennialists on this is when Jesus says that he has come to bind up the strong man enter his house, bind up the strong man, plunder his goods. Uh, Paul says that when he ascends, he will bring down gifts uh, in his train. These are texts that a post-millennialist would go to and say, in the death and resurrection of Christ, Satan is bound. Now, you'll notice in Revelation, that doesn't mean that Satan is is completely powerless. It just means that certain things are taken away. And uh, as you mentioned, they might attribute things like the power of the gospel to save is now out of the hands of Satan. The right. ability to deceive the nations wholesale is out of the hands of Satan. 
And so the resurrection would be the moment that he's bound for the church age. And then after that, there's a final battle. Our last question uh, is one, again, on the different views and how they fit together in this part of the book of Revelation. Is the rapture of the dispensational premillennial view in the Bible? If not, or if so, where did it come from? That's a really good question. Uh, the premillennial views, we talked about what's called historic premillennialism. So in the early church, there was uh, the original reading of it. I mean, there was some dispute, but by and large, I think the original reading was reading Revelation in a chronologically linear way. They would read it and see Armageddon in 19, the binding of Satan, the thousand-year reign of, of Christ on earth, the second uh, Satan comes up and Christ defeats him again. We have judgment, etc. So they did see it in a premillennial way. Christ comes before the millennium, and at the end of the millennium, we have the judgment, etc. But they didn't have any concept of the rapture. They just knew that Christ would come, the second coming of Christ, and you would have the resurrection of the dead to be judged. So there was just one uh, resurrection, if you will. And that's called historic premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism, we spoke about this in the lesson, but that dispensational approach to Scripture in general, and specifically, all I really talked about was its relationship to the premillennial view in the end times, that came about in the 1800s from the Plymouth Brethren, uh, John Nelson Darby in England, and then made its way over to the United States. It is a premillennial view, but it adds a couple of important twists. One thing is that it says that the thousand-year reign with Christ on earth is going to be Christ reigning with Jews who have been converted, who become Christian, who are now believers in the Messiah, and that thousand-year reign isn't really about the church. That thousand-year reign is fulfilling and finishing the promise to Abraham that his descendants and the Messiah would come together and he would reign. So given that that's the case, the millennium for dispensationalists isn't really about the saints, isn't about, it's about Jews who become Christians, reign with Christ, fulfilling something with Abraham. Well, what are you going to do with all the Christians who've lived throughout the church age, who weren't Jews, uh, Gentiles, Jews, whatever, throughout the church age, and they have died? Well, if you're alive at the beginning of the tribulation and you read 1 Thessalonians 4, and 1 Thessalonians 4 is that passage where Paul is reassuring them that in the end times, the trumpet will sound, Jesus will come, and we will be caught up. The word there in Latin is we will be raptured or seized and meet him in the air. Well, they read that very carefully and they say, you know what? That doesn't actually sound like the second coming. Maybe that's a different event than the second coming. Maybe that's a special event we're going to call the rapture. And that conveniently, and I don't mean to be glib when I say this, but Basically, if you have a rapture of the Christians who are alive at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, the church leaves the scene. Well, what does that leave you? In the seven years of tribulation, then the dispensationalists say Jews are going to become Christians in that time, and then Jewish Christians are going to reign with Christ, and that 
fulfills the promise to Abraham. Now, when I'm saying that, you're probably saying to me, oh, boy, there's an awful lot of new stuff in that, you know, and and why did the early church not think that? So to answer the question, the rapture is not in the Bible in a very direct way, meaning the idea of a rapture of the church before the tribulation being a separate event from the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead Making those two different events is a fairly recent development. So the rapture is basically pulled from 1 Thessalonians 4, and it accommodates the view that the reign of Christ on earth in the thousand years isn't just with all Christians, it's specifically with Jewish Christians. So you can see the, why the rapture is a unique development with the dispensational view. And the early church had premillennialism, but it had it without a rapture. So does that make any sense? Would you clarify that some, Cole? It, it gets a little bit murky, but hopefully you'd understand why the dispensational view is the only one that has a rapture. Right. And people can go listen to our book overviews of First and Second Thessalonians, where we talk about the rapture. Is there a mm-hmm. rapture? Uh, what are the different views? think about the rapture. The other thing that's interesting in what you just talked about is the role of the Jews and the Christians, which is probably the most unique in dispensationalism uh, rather than any of the other views. And in fact, I don't know of any of the other views other than historic premillennialism and dispensationalism particularly that have any different role for the Jews. Uh, All the other views would basically say Jews like Every other race will be saved through trusting in Christ. There's not this kind of two-track thing going on between Jews and, and the church. Um, but there there is a broader set of passages that, that might lead you to think that there's something different going on with the Jews. A lot of times dispensationalists will go to Romans chapters 10 and 11, talk about right. how when the Gentiles have been grafted in, the full harvest of the Gentiles— then all Israel will be saved. And if you read it in this same sense, you get this picture of after the church is taken, during the tribulation, during the reign of Christ, you're going to have Israel come, ethnic Israel, come to know the Lord and be saved. Uh, And dispensationalists disagree on exactly how that's going to happen. Some of them have a temple being rebuilt, sacrifices being offered again, because you have to have some fulfillment of land grant promises, prophecies from the Old Testament. Some don't believe that the temple needs to be rebuilt, but that you will have Israel in mass numbers coming back to God in that. And so, and that's another interesting feature of this discussion around chapter 20 of Revelation is from a dispensational standpoint, what's going on with the Jews? What's going on with the people of God who are left on the earth since the church has been taken during the reign of Christ? And and as you outlined that, I just wanted to point that out. That's another unique feature of one of the views, the dispensational view, when you get to this part of Revelation. Yeah, one of the things I pointed out in our lesson was uh, not to underestimate the appeal of that dispensational idea from the late 1800s. If you think about the history of the 1900s, you have World War I, and the British declaring the intent to have a Jewish homeland. You have World War II, and you have America and Britain supporting a Jewish homeland. That 
this idea that God is not finished with the Jews plays into, it's a religious view that played into some of the political events mm -hmm. in the 20th century, mm -hmm. because uh, dispensationalism is is very new, late 1800s. And so, but it it was so appealing and it played into some of the treatment of the Jews. And even today, when you see dispensational uh, end times preachers, and there are many of them, you know, the whole left behind scenario is dispensational premillennialism. You see this idea that the Jews are still a special group of people and God's God's got something going on with Christians, but he's not quite finished with the Jews yet. Whereas all the other views are what are called replacement theology. And that is God is finished with the Jews. I mean, not he's not negative toward them. They too can become Christians through Jesus Christ. But the Jews as an ethnic group of people are no longer God's chosen people. Jesus fulfilled that whole covenant. So most of the views have what's called a replacement theology. The church replaces Israel as God's chosen people. Whereas the dispensationals say, no, we have, like you said, two tracks going here. There's still some work left to be done with the Jews. And so that's the essence of the difference. And that is significant. So where are you going next week? We just have a few weeks left in the series. What's what's up next? Yeah, just a couple of weeks left. Next time we will uh, we'll recap this. Uh, the, as people have thought about it, they'll have some more questions to make sure they understand the millennial views. And then we'll do the rest of chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment. And the question there is exactly who's being judged, because your view of the millennium influences your view of who's being judged. And as long as we're there, I'd kind of like to talk about the idea of we're being judged by our deeds. And, you know, they open the books and everyone was judged by what they have done. And I get a lot of questions around that, and I'd like to talk about it. And then after judgment, the last week, we'll do chapters 21 and 22, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And needless to say, there are different views on that as well. Uh, it is a recreation. When you read it, it's going to sound an awful lot like the Garden of Eden. But you get the idea that this is heaven. So exactly what is heaven? And we'll get to talk about the nature of heaven. So that's what we have coming up in the last, uh, the last part of chapter 20, judgment and 21 and 22. The, we'll get to talk about the nature of heaven. Well, that'll be great. And uh, you just have a few weeks left to send in questions. So if you've got burning questions on Revelation, go ahead and send them in. Email us, info at sowespeak.com. Text them in during the lesson. Text one of us. Uh, we'd love to answer the questions before we get to the end of this series. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.